Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read from verse 25 onward. This will be a very familiar passage to you if you've attended a wedding recently. I'm in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Hear now God's word. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let's pray together. This is indeed a mystery, Lord, a mystery that in our own minds and hearts we fail to grasp and fail to believe and fail to enjoy. And so I pray in some small measure that you will bring this near to home, that Jesus has wed himself to the universal church, that we are his bride, and we enjoy the benefits thereof. Would you do that today, we ask, by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. As we've been walking through this line in the Nicene Creed, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I kind of made the point last week that I think of that line, the most difficult word to profess in that creed is holy, right? To stand up Sunday after Sunday and profess that we believe in one holy, sanctified, sinless church. That's a hard word for us who know each other to confess week after week. And we talked about that last week when we studied that word. This week, we're going to study what I think is the most confusing word in the creed, and that is the word Catholic. To stand up Sunday after Sunday and to say, I profess, I believe in the Catholic church. Now, That's confusing, of course, because we're celebrating the Reformation that happened 500 years ago, and just the fact that we're celebrating it says something about the relationship between the Protestant Church and the Roman Catholic Church. To way oversimplify things, the Church exists now in three major branches. You have the Orthodox Church, you have the Protestant Church, and you have the Roman Catholic Church. And so for a Protestant church, which we are, to profess Catholicism week after week is really odd. And to make matters worse, there is heat in that relationship between the two. To make light of that, the Orthodox Church doesn't recognize extra-ecumenical councils. And the Protestant Church doesn't recognize the Pope. And denominations don't recognize each other's ordinations, and poor Baptists don't recognize each other in a liquor store. <laughs> what are you doing here? You know? There are heat, there's heat between Protestants and Catholics. It is. It exists. And it's not just something that happened 500 years ago in Europe. It's something that has deeply affected our nation. 
In fact, somebody pointed out to me that it wasn't until 1928, less than 100 years ago, that a major party nominated a Roman Catholic to be president. His name was Al Smith, and he was set to run against Herbert Hoover. And when he was nominated, there was this major outcry among Protestants. They were worried what a Roman Catholic president might do to our nation and the evils that would befall us. So Al Smith knew that. He booked an auditorium in Oklahoma City. He traveled there, and he gave a speech about religion and unity that was quickly forgotten because the very next night, much to his dismay, a Protestant pastor booked the same auditorium and filled the place and delivered a speech, Al Smith and the Forces of Hell. That was his topic for the evening in which he labeled Smith with all the vices that the Protestants feared most if you had a Catholic president. I've got the list here of what he was afraid of, and I love this list because I don't even understand half the things that Protestants feared in the 1920s. Here it is. This is what a Catholic president could potentially bring to our nation. Card playing, cocktail drinking, poodle dogs... Divorces, novels, stuffy rooms, dancing, evolution, overeating, nude art, prize fighting, and actors. Some of us need assurances that when we profess in a Catholic church week after week, we are not agreeing to poodle dogs and actors. We need to know that there's something else behind this. Well, of course, the answer is very simple, and it lies in the definition of the word Catholic. When we say the word Catholic, we do not mean the Roman Catholic Church. It comes from the Greek word that means whole, complete, general, or universal. And so when we say that we believe in the Catholic Church, we say we believe in God's worldwide, universal, for-all-time church. We agree with one of the early church fathers, Ignatius, when he said that where Jesus Christ is, there is the universal church. Whether that church or its expression is Orthodox or Catholic or Protestant or Anglican or Evangelical or fundamental, where Jesus and his gospel is, there is the universal Catholic church. That's where she stands and that's where she shines. We could have taken that word and gone a number of different directions in the book of Ephesians. In fact, I wrote a quarter of a sermon defending from Ephesians 2 what makes a local church part of the universal church, right? What has to be true of a local church for us to really say that she is then part of the universal church? But as I got into that sermon, I kind of tired of it, and I said, even though that's important, what if instead of defending the universal church, we simply spent this morning enjoying the universal church? We're not making the case for the universal church. We're agreeing with the Bible that the church is universal, that wherever Christ and his gospel is, that is the church. And how do we celebrate the fact that even though we are converted individually, even though we are known by God by name, each of our stories and each of our paths for salvation, when God describes what happens in our conversion, he says it's a marriage between one groom, Jesus, and one bride, the Catholic Church. We are wed together, we are united together, 
And what if we spent the morning enjoying that fact rather than defending that fact? If we're going to do that, of course, the only place in Ephesians we can go is this great marriage passage in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, the point of Ephesians 5 for our purposes this morning is this. Jesus brings together one whole, complete, universal church to himself as his bride. There is one church that is united to him, the, the, the Catholic universal church. So this week, as I was thinking about this, I did some reading on weddings in first century Greek, Roman, and Jewish worlds. What were they like? What did they feel like? That's the background for this text, and it was a wildly good time to read all that information. But you know, there's something I realized about weddings that we could all presume that transcends languages and cultures and times, and that is people love weddings. Whether you're in the first century Greek world or the 21st century American culture, we love weddings. They make us happy. We like to fuss about them and the details. They are a joyous occasion. And that's what Paul is tapping into. But when Paul references a wedding, he's not saying that Jesus and the church is kind of like the weddings that you see month after month after month. No, he's saying the opposite. He's saying that when you attend a wedding and when you see a husband wed a wife, that's a very small and a very imperfect picture of Jesus wedding his church. Marriage and the institution of marriage, that's as old as Adam and Eve, but since the very beginning, it was meant to demonstrate, it was meant to illustrate, it was meant to show us in a more glorious form, what is Jesus wedding his church? Now, as I was thinking about that, and as I was digging into Ephesians 5, I re-remembered something that I had forgotten about this marriage between Jesus and his church. And that is this, that you could speak about the marriage as having already happened. We have already been wed to Christ if we are a believer. We're joined together with him as his bride. Now, in the past, when I thought about this, I thought about passages in Matthew and Revelation, which talk about that as a future event, right? We're moving towards what is going to be this great ultimate wedding in Revelation and this wedding banquet that is going to celebrate those things. But Ephesians 5 agrees with Ezekiel 16, and that is, it's perfectly appropriate to talk about that wedding as having already happened, That we today stand as married to Jesus. That's what I want to examine in our Ephesians passage. Look at verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is essentially saying, the best way I know how to describe your conversion universal church is the fuss over a young bride on her wedding day. 
that immediately taps into an image all of us can imagine, right? A young bride on her wedding day. You've got this gaggle of women who are fussing over the young bride-to-be, and everything needs to be perfect. Her hair needs to be perfect. Her makeup needs to be perfect. Her dress needs to be perfect. In the first century world, this was one of those rare occasions to take a bath. And that's why you have this reference to washing in water. And all that stress and all that time and all that money and all that energy bubbles over into that moment of moments when you sit in the sanctuary, when the mother of the bride stands and the crowd stands and the groom holds his breath and we look as the back doors open and here stands this beautiful bride dressed in white without spot or wrinkle. And Jesus says, that's it. That's what I want you to see. That's what I want you to hear. That's what I want you to feel and imagine. That is what I do for the church. I love the church. I gave my life for the church. I wash her and I make her clean. She is to me as a bride on her wedding day. She is spotless. She is blameless. She is holy. She is without wrinkle. That's my bride. That's the church. But there's actually more here. Because when we're wed to Christ, the only way to talk about Jesus and the church is to use Genesis language. Look at verse 31, which is really Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32 goes on to explain, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's this great mystery. The church has been joined to Christ, and they are are now considered as one. The union of a believer to Christ, and we have become one. And honestly, when the Bible thinks to talk about this union we have with Jesus, it struggles to put human language to it. That's why different letters have different descriptions to try to capture what exactly we mean when we say that I have now been joined to Jesus. Romans 6 says, it's kind of like we've died with Jesus and now we've risen to new life with Jesus. Galatians 4 says, no, 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 it's kind of like we've been clothed with Jesus and now we wear Jesus. But Colossians 3 says, no, it's not exactly like that. It's kind of like we've been hidden in Christ and now we're indistinguishable for Christ and you can't find us in Christ. And Jesus says, well, actually, John 15, it's more like I'm a vine and you're a branch and you're connected to me and you have no nourishment without me. But then 1 Corinthians 6 says, you know, it's kind of different than that. It's kind of like we've been built into this temple and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us so that he dwells within us and our bodies are his. But then Romans 8 says, you know, it might be better to talk about this to say that our new self is in the spirit and our old self was in the flesh. And you realize these guys are struggling to describe a mystery. The church, Jesus, we've been joined together 
And so more often than not, rather than any metaphor we can use, Bible writers go back to, again and again, that all-inclusive preposition, in. We are in Christ, we are in him, we are in the beloved. Now you get the idea, this is wild, this is heady, this is mysterious, this is hard to wrap our minds and hearts around, but where human language fails us, where it can take us no further, we have this incredible, intimate, glorious image, and that is of a spotless bride and her husband. Where words fail, I want you to picture a wedding between a husband and a wife, and that will get you close to the mystery that you as a believer are now joined to the person of Christ. That's the best I can say. That's the best I can show you. There's one more thing to say about Jesus and his universal Catholic church, and it's something that's very practical to us today. And it comes to us in verses 28 and 29. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now that Jesus has already proved his love by the wedding of the church, he doubles down to nourish and cherish the church. Nourish in Greek means physical nurture, and cherish in the Greek, it means emotional care. So now that you, church, are the bride of Christ, you gain all the privileges of that status here and now. Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church today physically and emotionally. Isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus doesn't just care about your soul, he cares about your body too. He actually wants you, believer, to be well provided for. He doesn't want you to be anxious about today. He wants to provide for today and tomorrow that you can enjoy the provisions that come from his hand. He's actually going to care for you and he's going to nourish your body today. And then to learn that Jesus also cares about us emotionally. He cherishes us. He's not just dragging our bodies and our souls across this wasteland known as life to get us to heaven as quick as possible. No, in this time, in this life, he wants to give us the emotions of joy and peace. He cherishes us and feeds us. In a sense, you could say, Jesus is still dating his bride. He's been wed to us, but he wants us to experience joy and peace and happiness in him today, and he will provide the means to enjoy that kind of care. Jesus, he weds himself to us. Jesus is now described as being as one with us, and because he's one with us, and because he loves his own self, he loves us, and he turns and nourishes and cherishes and cares for us. Friends, we spent this time in Ephesians 5, and we didn't even make a case for the Catholic Church that spans denominations and languages and cultures and all history. Instead, we just marveled at Jesus and the Catholic Church. He loves us. He weds us. He longs for us. 
He cherishes us. And when we see Jesus and his church, we are absolutely smitten. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're your bride. You've laid down your life to make it so. We're spotless and clean without wrinkle or blemish. You have given yourself to make it so. You nourish and cherish us. It has cost you your life to make it so. And we stand today as a spotless bride wed to you who will be nourished and cherished and protected by you. Let us enjoy that. Let us embrace that. Let that be the impetus for us to think about ourselves as one universal Catholic church wed to you and at one with you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.